Well, it is my joy to begin for us a conversation that will take us through the next six weeks of Lent. And we decided as a community of, of preachers, uh, along with obviously Dan Meyer, that what we were going to chase after during Lent was a very lighthearted topic, the problem of evil. <laughs> so happy Valentine's Day. Um, we're going to go after the problem of evil. Uh, we are reminded daily, right, that evil is a very real presence in our world. Every morning, I confess I'm lazy. I don't make my own coffee. I go to a coffee shop and someone makes it for me. And while I'm waiting for my coffee, I read a stack of newspapers. I just read the headlines of our national news that sitting there next to the cream and sugar. And lately, right, it's been Syrian refugees. It's been lying and cheating politicians. It's been the Zika virus. It's been the remnants of the Ebola virus. Maybe the story of a drunk driver who took someone else's life too soon. Right? Evil makes news. Evil makes national headlines. And if you've ever had a history class, you know the evil names that have made history, right? Stalin, Hitler, Mugabe, Gaddafi, Pol Pot. We know the names. Most of us can pull the name of a mass murderer or an armed shooter out of our mind. Most of us, whether or not the evil that we've experienced has made headlines, can tell a story about an injustice or an evil that has been perpetrated against us. I remember um, one of my little guys, when he was in third grade, came home from school. He had put a treasured little toy that he wasn't supposed to bring to school, but he did anyway, at the bottom of his locker, and somebody took it during lunch. And it was the first time that he was confronted by the fact that some people don't play by the rules, never mind that he wasn't even supposed to take the toy to school in the first place. And he was crying. And it was less that he had lost his little gadget and more that for the first time in his life, it occurred to him that people do things to one another that aren't always good. And he said to me, crying, he says, Mom, why would anybody do that? And what I wanted to say to him was, oh, buddy, don't worry, that'll never happen again, right? But that's not reality. And he was just a little third grader. There are third graders who have suffered more injustice by that age than some adults will ever in their whole lives, right? Because evil is real, and it infiltrates every inch and every corner of our society and of our world. And it's intriguing to us. It's why it lands on the front page of newspapers. It's why when we don't perhaps have a news story gruesome enough, we make some up through movies and film and literature. 20 some years ago, I saw Silence of the Lambs and it is still etched in my brain. I will never watch that movie again, but I could tell you vividly the scenes in that film, right? Why do teenagers huddle in a basement and watch horror movies together? What is that 
about, right? What makes shows like The Walking Dead or Dexter or Blacklist or Breaking Bad or Kevin Spacey, right, as Frank Underwood, so good, right? The malicious, malevolent politician. What is it about evil that intrigues us, scares us, has it on our front page news and our news feeds and our Twitter feeds and everything else? I mean, in faith circles, we try to wrestle with it. We ask ourselves the questions about evil. And Peter Kreft, who is a Christian and also the philosophy professor at Boston College, as well as the King's College in New York, writes this. He says, more people have abandoned their faith because of the problem of evil than for any other reason. It is certainly the greatest test of faith, the greatest temptation to unbelief. And it's not just an intellectual objection. We feel it. We live it. The problem can be stated very simply. If God is so good, why is his world so bad? And if an all-good, all-wise, all-loving, all-just, and all-powerful God is running the show, why does he seem to be doing such a miserable job of it? And oh, by the way, why do bad things happen to good people? Theologians call this the problem of evil. And they have wrestled with it century upon century upon century upon century. And what I would love to do is stand up here and tell you that we at Christ Church have this solved. But we don't. We don't. And so I'm not going to promise you answers to every question about evil. But our commitment and our promise is that we're going to talk about it for the next six weeks and try to understand how to combat it, where it comes from. And what the community of faith is called to do while worshiping a loving God in the face of dark and evil places in our world. And so let's look together at where the story begins. It's Genesis chapter 2, verses 25 through chapter 3, verse 7. Listen now as I read to us from the word of God, if you want to. Pull it up on your phone or pull it out in a scripture. Please feel free to do that. This is the word of the Lord. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This passage is commonly referred to as the fall of humanity. It is arguably one of the most studied 
and talked about and researched passages in all of Christian faith history. Yet, interestingly, there is very little information to go on here. We have the nuts and bolts, the basics of the story. And what I think most of human history has longed for is not provided here. There is no commentary. There is no third party who discusses this and then records in scripture what happened. The author of Genesis did not say, now here are three takeaways from this story. We don't have that. We have the story very simply and very plainly laid out for us. And so what do we know about this story? What can we discern from this passage? I mean, first of all, remember that God has just created the heavens and the earth. And he has created every living being and creature that moves on the ground and birds and fish and skies and stars. And he has declared all of it good. And then he creates man and woman in his image, both of them. And he declares they are very good. And then this little one-liner, and they were both naked and they felt no shame. Well, why even mention shame if it wasn't about to happen, right? We have a little bit of foreshadowing here. Why even write that shame existed? Because they were about to trip up into it. And if you look back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, you'll notice the mention of evil comes before the fall of man and woman. In Genesis 2, we're told that God made all the trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and what? Evil. And so the serpent arrives on the scene and he engages the man and woman in a conversation. And it's one of those little whispers that comes. Interestingly, the serpent says just two things. He has just two lines. And one is a question. And he just makes Adam and Eve question things. Did God really say you couldn't do that? How many of you have ever had that friend, right? Maybe in high school or college. Maybe some of you are that friend, <laughs> right? The one that likes to push the boundaries a little bit more. The one that likes to say, oh, come on. Your mom didn't really say you couldn't do that. I mean, what fun would life be unless you were allowed to do that? And all the serpent did was throw a question out there. And interestingly, the serpent engages Adam and Eve in theological dialogue. The serpent is the first theologian, the first one in scripture to talk about God instead of to God. And Adam and Eve take the bait. They want to have this conversation. Well, why would this God, if he loved us so much, why would he prohibit us from that? And so they go back and forth and have a conversation about this. And we're told the serpent is crafty. The word crafty is used in Proverbs for wisdom. And what it points to is that Adam and Eve took that bait and went after what God told them not to on a quest for wisdom and knowledge. You know, in my mind, I like to see Adam and Eve as defiant toddlers stamping their feet in the garden, shaking their fists, just deciding to do evil just because it felt like the right thing to do in the moment. 
But they made a decision that was thoughtful. They went after knowledge. Why? Knowledge is what? Power. Knowledge is power. And they wanted to know everything there was to know. And God had decided there are just some things you should not know. There are boundaries. And God gave them everything in the garden except that one thing. But there was some knowledge and therefore some power in the thing they had been told not to have. God drew one boundary and said, please stay within this. It is for your safety. Because at this time, they did not know they were naked. And they did not know what evil was, and they did not know what death was. And God drew a boundary around that for their own safety. How many of you like to push the boundaries? Human history, we have been pushing the boundaries ever since. In our family, we are, uh, we are avid skiers in our family. And years ago, before kids, my husband and I were skiing, we happened to be with a friend who uh, was a ski patroller. And he was off duty that day, and we were all enjoying um, a really lovely powder day. And if any of you are skiers, you'll know that about halfway through a powder day, all the powder's gone. It's all tracked up. And there's these boundaries in ski resorts that mark off places you can't go. But beyond those boundaries is beautiful, untracked, untamed, knee-deep powder, which is a skier's paradise. And I remember my husband and I and our friend kind of skied up to one of the boundaries and we were like, look at that powder. No one's been there. That'd be the best skiing of like our lives if all we have to do is just duck under the boundary and it's ours. And so we looked at my friend who was ski patrol. We're like, do you think we should do this? And he goes, well, here's the thing. He goes, they're about to start avalanche blasting here. You know how they blast for avalanche? They fire rockets from one side of a ski resort to the other to blast the snow so that people don't later die in an avalanche. And he looked at us and he goes, so your choice, you want to get hit with a rocket or you want to just stay in bounds, right? <laughs> I mean, and honestly, if he hadn't been with us, we wouldn't have known. We would have been like, yeah, you know what? Just a little boundary. I mean, what's the big deal? Just a little snow fence. I, you know, I'm here today because I listened. Okay. Right? Rockets, dynamite. I don't know. Who knows what's beyond the boundaries? There was one boundary. It was a quest for knowledge. And Adam and Eve said, you know what? We want to be just like you, God. We want to know the thing that you know. Walter Brueggemann says, this story is about knowledge. And he says, there are some things about human life that remain hidden and inscrutable and which will never be trampled on by human power or knowledge. There are secrets about the human heart and the human community that must be honored, bowed before, and not exposed. That is because the gift of life in the human heart and in the human community is a mystery retained by God for himself. It has not been put at the disposal of human ingenuity and human imagination. We are not to know everything. There are things that God alone knows. And the fatal flaw that Adam and Eve made was a decision then to live in God's world on their own terms. It was God's world, and they should have lived in God's world on God's terms. But they decided instead to live in God's world on their own terms. And they take and they eat, and suddenly their eyes are opened. God did not withhold that knowledge from them. He gave it to them. 
And suddenly they realized there was creator and creature. And they were not the same. And the creature was limited. And the creature, they weren't even like each other. And suddenly there was shame and nakedness and covering up and hiding. And God then is walking through the garden and he's calling for them. And they're hiding under a tree. And by Genesis 6, chapter 5, we're told that evil from that moment had taken and spread all over the earth. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That, my friends, is how we landed where we are today. And as we know, evil has taken millions upon millions of different forms. It has impacted every life that has ever lived. And our consistent daily decisions to live in God's world on our own terms perpetrates evil. And yes, there are horrific evil acts that impact millions upon millions of people. And then there are the tiny little private evil thoughts and moments in our own hearts that permeate our days and our homes and our professions and our own lives. And we have been tangled up in this mess ever since the garden. And so how then does the community of faith that comes to this place on a Sunday morning for a hope-filled message deal with the realities of evil? How do we get from the tree to the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday? How do we find ourselves redeemed and reconciled and in a place where evil has been overcome? What I want to invite us to consider today are a few properties, if you will, of evil. Is if you don't know what you're dealing with, you don't know how to combat it and how to invite God into the center of it. You know, there are many times when I come home from work and there's chaos in my house. I have children arguing or something has happened in some sort of way in my family life. And I choose on a good day not to intervene until I know what I'm dealing with. <laughs> until I have all the facts. So what are the facts? What's the situation? What are we dealing with? Right? This is what we're doing here. We're going to figure out what we're dealing with. And then... As the weeks go by, we're going to unpack more and more about this. But the first, the first thing I want us to remember is this. Evil is universal, and it impacts everything. It is universal. There is no group of people or person who is immune from evil. Granted, there are some who make more evil decisions than others, but it is universal, and it impacts everything. The book of Job, Job's friend Eliphaz observed this. He said, human beings are born to trouble just as sparks fly upward. Job chapter 5. We all have the propensity for evil acts in us. Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Romans 3 chapter 10. Paul tells us there is none righteous, not even one. Augustine, St. Augustine uh, would write later 
that evil was not its own thing. He would say it wasn't like an atom or a molecule, right? Or a, a piece of dust just randomly floating through the air. He would describe it as parasitic, that it needed a living host to attach to, to carry it out, which is to say that evil is not separate from us. It lives on us. It thrives on us. It uses us to wreak havoc in the world. It impacts our thoughts and our actions. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote more than half of the New Testament, he struggled. He struggled with decisions between good and evil. In Romans 7, he says this, For I do not do the good that I want to do. I don't do it. But the evil that I do not want to do, this I do. This I keep on doing. And he goes on to lament why he struggles to make good decisions. I find great comfort in that. <laughs> if Paul had a hard time, chances are you and I are going to struggle as well. Creation itself is impacted by evil. We're told that the creation had been subjected to the evil from the beginning. We're told that creation is waiting and groaning groaning in expectation, waiting for the resurrected Lord to come and restore the garden and the earth and the very ground we walk on has been impacted by evil. It impacts our marriages, our schools, our homes, our government. It warps our intellects. It impacts the systems that have been created for justice and mercy Evil begets evil. I mean, any of us who've even maybe fibbed a little or told a little lie know that sometimes then you need another one and another one and another one. Revenge is the idea of evil begetting evil. Evil is universal and it impacts everything. Secondly, evil can be a teacher. There are lessons to learn from evil. And this is not to say we should rejoice because bad things happen. I will not be the pastor that stands up here and says to you, isn't it awesome the tragedy happened? Now look what we can learn. But when tragedy does happen, when evil is unleashed, we can reach out for God and learn beautiful lessons about God in the dark shadows that that evil has cast. This is why many people who go through great illness would say to you, while they don't want to go through that illness again, they learned lessons in illness and in the wonder and in the shadow of death that they could have never learned any other way. It's why over and over and over again in scripture, when the nation of Israel had suffered through slavery, had suffered through tragedy, had suffered through genocide and loss and grief, over and over and over again, they're told, remember, remember what happened. Why? Just because it's fun to think back on hard times? No. Remember so that the lessons that you learned in those moments will help you Stay strong 
and when possible, not repeat them. Barbara Brown Taylor is a a theologian who I just love to read and was a pastor at one time herself. And she said this. She said, I have learned things in the dark that I could never have learned in the light. Things that have saved my life over and over again. So that there is really only one logical conclusion. I need darkness. I need the lessons in darkness as much as I need the lessons in light. We can learn about the love of God in the dark places. Who needs a flashlight at noon on a sunny day, right? But there are ribbons of light and threads from heaven that shine down into the darkest corners where evil has brought its worst. And the job of the Christian is to look for them and to cling to them and to bring others to them. There is a lesson to be learned from evil. And lastly, and most importantly, the lesson to be learned is that evil will be defeated. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the message of the cross. This is the story we are moving toward for Easter Sunday. Evil will be defeated. Adam and Eve were spared. God could have looked down and said, well, that experiment didn't work. <laughs> Let's just clean the slate and start over. He could have killed them outright. He had that power. He had that authority. He spared them. And not only did he spare them, yes, there was a punishment, but they then were clothed and provided for and loved. And eventually God himself sent his son to die and be resurrected on the cross so that they might be restored to the life in the garden that they had lost. Now, Peter Kreft again asks us to flip the question because we are often obviously prone to ask that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Peter Kreft says, why does good happen to any of us? If we're all inclined to evil, if we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God, why does anything good happen to any of us? Why do people show us grace and love, compassion, tenderness, mercy? I know I don't deserve those things when they come my way. And God cares for us and he nurtures us and he moves us along and he leads us to his cross. And he eventually dies for us and restores us to the garden as if the whole thing never happened. This is the good news. This is the story. There is victory at the end. This is not naivete. This is the word of God come to us. New life. New life comes because of our resurrected Savior. We then, my friends, live not in a narrative of destruction and evil, which is what started in Genesis 3, but we live in a narrative of restoration where all things one day will be made right to the glory of God. And evil will indeed lose. We're told in Genesis that the seed of the woman, which is to say the line 
of the woman, Jesus, who is coming, will step on the head of that serpent and will triumph. There's a great um, little movie that came out maybe 10 years or so. It's called Because of Win Dixie. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's the story of a 10-year-old little girl named Opal, and she's lonely. She's just moved to a new town with her dad, who's now a single parent. And she finds a dog at the Winn-Dixie parking lot and names the dog Winn-Dixie. And then she befriends a woman named Gloria Dump, who happens to be an aging, blind, recovering alcoholic. And one day, Gloria and little 10-year-old Opal are sitting on Gloria's front porch, and they're talking. And Opal has just made a new friend. It's a really kind boy who works at the pet store in town, and he's really good with the pets, and he's a really great musician. But Opal is stressed because she also just learned that this boy at the pet shop had served time in prison at a pretty early age in his life, and she doesn't know what to do with this. And so she's sitting on the porch with Gloria, and Opal is asking her what to do. Do you know, she says, that he had a criminal past? Did you know that he had been in jail? And Gloria says to her, she goes, oh, baby girl, come over here. I want to show you something. And Gloria walks Opal to her backyard and shows her a big, beautiful tree. And hanging from the tree are hundreds of bottles tied with string hanging from the branches of the tree. And they're clanging and banging together in the wind. She tells her this, she tells Opal, she says, this is my mistake tree. And the sound of these bottles are the ghosts of all the things that I've done wrong. And Opal looks at her and says, you did that many things wrong? She goes, and some of those are whiskey bottles and beer bottles. And Gloria says, that's right, I know that. She goes, I'm the one who drank what was in them. And I'm the one who put him up there. You know, a lot of folks have problems with liquor and beer. They get to start drinking and they can't get stopped. And Opal says, are you one of those people? She goes, yes, I am. She goes, but you know something? These days I don't drink nothing stronger than coffee. And Opal says, did the whiskey and the beer and the wine, did they make you do those things? She goes, some of them. She goes, but most of them I would have done on my own anyway. It was in me to do them. She goes, until then, I learned the most important thing. And Opal says, what's that? And Gloria says, you got to learn that one for yourself, baby girl. She goes, but you know what? Who are we to judge? She goes, that boy at the pet shop who makes the pretty music and is kind to all them animals, that's all we know about him right now, isn't it? And she says, you're right. So that's how we should see him. My friends, I love that story because hanging from the trees in this world are billions upon billions of bottles. And they're clanging and crashing together in the wind of this life. And some of them smack together so hard that they shatter billions of shards of glass and they pierce our hearts and our cultures and our society. And they, and they devalue and they rob us of the life that God gave us. But the one thing, the one thing for the Christian is to know that one day the wind stops blowing. And all the bottles will fall to the ground. 
And all we will have are the remnants of the tree of life, of the good that has overcome the evil. One day there will not be a mistake tree in the garden, but there will be the final moment of victory when Jesus returns to scoop us all up and to make all things new. This is the story we are told in Revelation 22. He, Jesus, will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we are in good company and we've all got the mistake tree in our yard with the bottles clanging in the wind. But you have, God, promised us resurrection life. And so for those of us who will reach out and trust and take, we have hope. So, Lord, while we now understand more about the realities of evil, I pray, God, that you would bless us to now also understand more about the realities of your love and your sacrifice and the giving of life that you give us. May we be purveyors, Lord, of the light and the hope and the glory that is your resurrected life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.